You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. In a moment, Veronica will introduce our guest. And I can tell you, you want to listen on to hear what he has to say about the future of real estate agents and why they may not have a job in a few years. Yeah, look, things will change. We know that. And there's a you know a website, I forget the exact domain name, but it's, you know, will a robot take my job? You know, you key that in and then if it says you're doomed, um, yeah, yeah, you would feel threatened. Absolutely. And you look at real estate appraisers as well and, and that comes back and you, know, you key that in, it says doomed. Then stick around for this week's Elephant Rider training. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. This week, we're picking the brains of Kent Lardner. Essentially, he's a geek with a personality and anyone interested in research is going to love this episode. He first stepped into the property space working in Lenders Mortgage Insurance or LMI. And way back then in 1999, he started studying automated valuation model method and started to create property databases. After the LMI years, he joined forces with a startup called PriceFinder. Now, here he designed a user-assisted price estimate tool, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, and expanded the data coverage nationally. This was a challenger brand to RP data. Now, agents will know who that is. And these guys successfully built it and on-sold it to Fairfax. So after that, Kent actually joined the competitor, Happy Data, for a while before venturing out on his own, creating a software solution based on real estate agents posting comparable sales publicly against real estate listings. This ended up morphing into the Victoria Consumer Affairs model for all agents with that business being absorbed by Real Estate View. Now, his current role is with JLL, or that's Jones Lang LaSalle, right? Yes, as Digital Innovation Manager. Now, like many businesses in the property sector, they're focusing on ways to leverage data, use blockchain technology, it's all very, very futuristic, and artificial intelligence. And his goal is to help the business grow with these emerging trends. Now, welcome, Kent. We are really looking forward to finding out more about the future through your experience. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Look, I'm absolutely very excited for today. I'm a lover of data and technology and property. You're a geek. Yes. So I would say I'm a geek in some form, maybe with a personality like you. Don't get ahead of yourself. But, um, (laughs) you know, one of the things that I love about data and I always wish we put our microphone on when you actually first arrive, which it happens with all our guests, um, is some of the inconsistencies with data and the nuances and the things that data just can't pick up. And I'd love to just for you to, to explain a bit more about how that plays out in the property market. Well, uh, one of the common uh, mistakes I see being made is you know, people know a little bit and just enough to be dangerous. And I think that's the, probably one of the themes for today. And let's pick on one simple measure. You know, people like to use medians, the median house price. But <laughs> really, what, you know, the first thing to call out there is, well, what's the median area? Are you going one suburb or a postcode or a LGA, you know, a local government area? So how wide are you going? How far back are you going? What's the the time period? And how many properties are in that sample size? 
Mm. I say sample, it sounds a little bit more uh, yeah, elite. Uh, yeah, elite, doesn't it? <laughs> I think that's the first call out. Look at how many how many um, properties are in that sample and how far back it goes uh, as a bit of a call out. Most of the most of the displays that happen in the public domain now, people are on top of it. These websites are certainly you know aware of statistical anomalies, etc. So everybody's lifting their game, which is good, but it still doesn't mean that that individuals shouldn't understand because I still see some dodgy stuff. I, I nearly said the SH1T word. It's all right. I've dropped it <clears> a couple of times. You can. Yeah, but I, I think the key is um, I'm seeing your medians where they're, they're, they're drilling down to a one suburb, um, you know, one suburb, and there's only four or five sales in it or mm. four or five rentals in it. It's like, what the heck? That's going to jump around all over the place. Well, your median could move 30% in a month. Oh, you know, all yeah. over the place. So absolutely. And, the, and then the other factor you've got with that, you know, picking on medians while we're at it, is something called a, a compositional bias. What's in it? And yeah. around here, you know, we're in the inner south or the inner west of Sydney or whatnot, what you've got is a lot of new stuff that comes on the market. So mm-hmm. you go from being a old old market with old dodgy, you know, walk-up yep. units and whatnot that might be 30, 40, 50 years old, and suddenly a new estate comes on board or a new development, and then suddenly the median jumps through the roof, and it's suddenly all the media companies and the magazines are saying, oh, look at, look at this uh, number oh. one performing suburb. Absolute BS. I know, and it's shocking. And uh, I see this all the time. And when you do know a bit about a particular marketplace and you see, and this is reputable publications do this, they go, the stats, they look straight at the stats, they don't look beyond the stat, they don't look to understand what made that stat, and then they publish an entire story on it and then unwitting buyers rush and go, oh, that's the next It's the boom suburb, suburb. Yeah. yeah. And I think so, you know, for me, one thing today would be to kind of highlight to people, look behind the data, mm-hmm. look, look behind those summary statistics and see, you know, what's going on. Well, I mean, the papers love it, beer sells, breed sells, but you also know, mar- the next hotspot sells. Yeah, and I mean the market's going up, the market's going down. I mean the property market isn't one market. I I call it the patchwork quilt. Um, you know, even a suburb gets gets really drills down to an individual area. So one of the pockets that we're using the the um, the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, they come up with something called a statistical area level one SA one, and it's a beauty. It's the smallest little area that they carve up the census data and display it or share it with people without getting too personal. Yeah, with you. And it's around 200 homes. So there's about 55,000 of these around the country. Now, when you apply that to property, usually you're not going to have a big enough sample size right back to everything we said a minute ago. But other things, it's really, really valuable. And you can can understand and see a, a lot about a market before you go in and there's a lot of measures about a market that just aren't about house prices, mm-hmm. um, like um, something called a CIFA index, which is a um, an index that measures um, a disparity in terms of income and access to 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 facilities or, or uh, cars, whatever. So a CIFA index. CIFA index. So yeah, so it's been around a while. look, it's a it's a government measure. And I've only just recently stumbled upon it, but it's been around for a while. So mm. it's starting to make some media of late. So it's it's really about it, you know, socioeconomic uh, profiling. Yeah. And there's different measures, and one of them is just looking at all the negative stuff, and it's a scale, and you mm-hmm. look at a you know, decile ranking, one to ten, one being a you know, fairly unfortunate, you know, a, you know, an area that's at the lower end of the spectrum, yeah. and then one that's mixed that combines both disparity at the lower end plus you know, advantage at the top end and blending them up. But that's a great measure. It's just mm-hmm. one measure of many. And I say, if you're looking at buying into a market, don't just look at house prices. Yep. Look yeah. at the government, you know, your taxes pay for a lot of great data 
And, well, and you know, look at the census stuff. Oh, man, I'm, I'm so excited about that myself because right at the minute I've been working through putting together a portfolio review program for people that come to us already owning a portfolio property that they've bought, you know, with sometimes with advice, sometimes without advice, and really trying to help them work out what properties they should keep in their portfolio and which they should get rid of. And so I'm looking into all this data. So this this is a very timely interview for me, and I'm just like, oh, they're writing notes copiously. And I came across one uh, fairly new website that amalgamates or pulls in data for a number of different sources and uses a, a set amount of measures, and it comes up with a top 250 suburbs in Australia to invest in, in the, you know, in the near future. Yeah. And look, you know, a lot of the people behind this are very, very respected people, yeah. right? I was mortified because top, number three is Shalvey. Now, okay. do you know Shalvey? Yeah, out near Wayland. I don't want to pick on it. I no. don't. But socioeconomically, it's really, really, really. Yeah, probably the, a one in, or two. Um, be, yeah. Absolutely. So from an investor's point of view, there's, there's a lot of issues that you need to be aware of. Now, yeah. if you looked at a list like that and went, well, that comes from a reputable source, I'm going to go and buy something in Shelby without questioning anything further, you would have done your dash. Oh, look, I'll take a stab here. I'll probably say the, the, the main variable in the model is probably rental yield. Mm-hmm. So, that you know, they probably said, okay, well, what can I buy a house for? What can I rent it for? Okay, what's that going to return me in terms of a, an annual yield or a weekly yield um, without looking at anything else? And that can be great as long as your house is occupied. Mm. Correct. <laughs> I mean that oh, is dear. that is a that is a great line there. Um, I mean, you, <laughs> one thing to get a good yield is, you know, to get a good yield, you need two things. You either need you need a very high rent, the price of the property, or a low so, price of the property, and mm. so you really need to get a good rent to a cheap property. Yeah, and then you to, in that situation, people are happy to rent it, but they're not happy to buy it because I'm happy to pay a stupid rent for a cheap property. And that usually comes down to a point where they can't afford to buy it. Uh, and there's some crazy rents. Mm. So I've just uh, actually literally walked out of a, a meeting with um, a community housing group um, that services that part of uh, Sydney, the Western Sydney area, and was looking at some of the rents and, and, and income levels and the CIFA index, the, you know, the uh, socioeconomic index. And some of the rents were really high when you consider you know, where these particular suburbs sit in terms of socioeconomic disadvantage and income levels. You know, I think the household income was about 1300 a week. Mm. Yeah. Yet the rental, the, you know, the house rent was about 460 and a unit was about 400 Wow. That's, yeah. that's, that's pretty sad. So who's paying yeah. those rents? Are there are multiple families um, sharing these places? Is that the way they can afford it? Tough. Yeah, it is tough. I don't have a, 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 an eyeball into how many people are in these houses and mm. what's going on other than just looking at the census data. Yeah. And the census data does tell you how many people per room or how many people right. per house. One question I'd love to ask you, and I will, uh, <laughs> research. Yes. Property research. Yes. It's a big, big word. Cool, isn't it? And people mm. use it for reasons. What's your view on this so-called research? Well, um, are we talking from uh, a professional investor perspective or somebody just looking in as a first home buyer? We get wrapped up in research uh, and people use research to sell property. Yes, okay. And mm. um, it's usually data that is extremely heavily biased and I've probably given you too much yeah. already. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. So let's, let's pick on that. So this was one of the call-outs with the underquoting uh, legislation and the changes in Victoria. And underquoting is a big problem. Uh, still is a, a bit of a problem, but they, they're doing a, putting in a big effort to, to stamp it out. And yes, it'll probably spread. some very big fines down there. Yeah, no doubt that'll spread into the other states, in my humble opinion. Um, 
So what it's all about is you know, effectively displaying the comparable sales that you've selected and putting it in the public domain so that people can analyze it. So at the moment, I'm not seeing that, that analytics layer fall out yet, but that'll happen. So at the moment, it's just transparent. Here are the comps that I've selected or comparable sales I've selected for this property. And then I, I guess from there, you can start to see that bias because I'm cherry picking comparable sales. Mm -hmm. To support my, Tell my, my sale story. Price. Yeah, yeah. You know, typically the, that, that product that's is called a comparable market analysis or a CMA, lots of three letter acronyms in, in our oh, game. The property market's full of them. Oh yeah. <laughs> you can cherry pick what you want to support the price. You just, you know, you just go wider and longer. Of course. To go and pick the pick the comps. Yeah. And really, if you were entirely unbiased in this process, you would say, let's not look at the price. Let's leave price to one side. Look at the property and then match the comparable sales around yes. it. And then what you come up with as a result is the price. But what, we, what we're doing with this other biased approach is we're putting price into the selection, mm. and that's where the bias comes. Yeah, interesting. When I was selling, I did an appraisal on a property, and I didn't check the last time it sold before I gave the owner the appraisal for the property. Oh, you were lower. I was lower. Mm, oh my god! You're bad. Yeah. Well, I learned. I learned a very, very um, big lesson in terms of just potential vendor management because, of course, I didn't get anywhere near looking like getting that listing because I had egg all over my face, and I'm not sure I would have. Well, maybe I would have. And this is the thing with agents: there's a bias there in in terms of knowing what they paid, and that then would have factored into my understanding or my belief in terms of what I thought it might have been worth. Now, whereas I didn't look and therefore I looked at recent sales and I formed an opinion without that piece of information. And it is interesting to know that agents have these sort of biases in terms of when they're selecting data and all sorts of inputs as well. Yeah, look, a, a common complaint from, from many um, agents who lose listings um, when they do their listing presentation is they didn't go in high enough. Mm. They went in honest. Yeah, and then the, you know the, the person who went in with the, the higher bid and told the the vendor what they wanted to hear, um, one that got the contract signed, and then the discounting starts. Yeah, so I want to go down a bit of a technology kind of route Ooh. just for a minute. Yeah, um, you've worked a lot in around understanding what a property's worth. Mm -hmm. You know, getting more and more kind of data sets yes. to kind of keep and it's improving. getting better too. The future looks pretty spooky and fantastic. yeah. For that, for, the, for that. the nerd in you, I guess <laughs> yeah. to figure out. To, you know, and it can't pick up all the nuances, but then the more data you put in, the big data, the more yeah, it can. Yeah, you got it, yeah. There's mm. a US company called Zillow. Yes. And they've got something called the Zestimate. Yes. Which which is an algorithm to basically put an address in and you get a get Zestimate. A price. Yeah. And that Zestimate is meant to give you the best, you know, uh, guess, guess, Zestimate, estimate yeah. at that <laughs> price. Now, they, they ran a competition recently. Yeah, I think um, it was a million-dollar prize. That's right. You can, can you please explain to listeners, I guess, a bit more about that? Because some companies are now using this estimate to sell property straight away without any agents. So it's the, the AVM or automated valuation model um, approach, there's a few measures of performance. So typically what you do is you predict the house price with sight unseen, not knowing what it's going to sell for or what it's listed for. That's a true blind test. That's the true. You know, not everyone's true. So then what you do is you say, okay, here's my outer sample test, as you call it, um, the, the last 100 sales for this particular suburb. Okay, this was my prediction. What did it sell for the next day? And then you compare it. You can slice up that error a few ways. One of them is to say, what's the uh, absolute variance against the sale price? So it's a, you know, it's a, a median of the error. 
in absolute terms. So you've you know, forget about plus or minus, just say in absolute terms, I'm 6% out all the time on average. Um, there's another site called House Canary um, and they are doing very solid job from what I can see. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in the US market. They've gone less the free approach and gone for the premium approach because they, the performance appears to be so solid. And I think on their side, I saw something in the order of, you know, five and a half or 6% mm-hmm. error rate. <clears throat> so if that's true, it's pretty damn good. Now, what are they doing that's different? Because one of my, you know, I hate that ANZ ad, you know, this sanctimonious oh, yeah. <clears throat> buyer shows the agent an iPad with a range on it and the range is like 780 to 950 or something. But also, you know, I look at RP Data or, or Core Logic now, they're called, I look at price finders yes. and I love taking screenshots of those estimates of properties that have just sold because they often widely, yeah. widely variant there. And if a buyer gets these reports, A, Either the range is so ridiculously wide it's not helpful anyway, yeah. or B, it's actually way out. What are these ones, like House Canary and all the rest of it, what are they doing that's different? Well, it's evolving fairly rapidly now, but I, I think the number one difference between, say, the US and Australia, and then we'll talk about some other markets like, say, China and Australia, is they've got the square meterage or the square footage, as they call it. Um, the square footage is, is a wonderful um, measure or data set to use in your predictive models. Whereas of, of the land or the Of the, the building, of building, the improvement right. area. So mm. um, we work with you know, bathroom, bedroom, car space. So what they've got is a richer data set to play with. Um, they've got a better data set for property style. Mm. Then they've got factors such as are there, is there heating, uh, et cetera. Um, and the square footage. Or and, the square and where do they get that information from? Well, it's typically state by state. There's different you know, MLS or the multiple listing, whatever that acronym right. stands for. But <laughs> So there are data sets over there aggregated up by big companies. CoreLogic is one mm-hmm. of those. Um, and it's a really rich data set to play with for these models. So I think that's the big difference why you know, if you had the, the same models but with that different in data set, you'd probably say 10% difference in, in error margin between Australia and the US, for example. So, so the moral of the story here for property buyers in, in Australia is very much that if there isn't enough data, if there isn't the volume of relevant data, then, of course, the actual measure and the output of these this research is going to be unreliable. I think you, you know your market, know the property. So there's two scenarios that can happen here. You can have a, a very homogenous house in a thinly traded locality. Right, so, so that's going to an cause, example. That's so, going to create some grief. So it could be a very standard house for the market. Yeah. Um, you know, it might be a you know, $4 million, $5 million plus marketplace, for example. Yep. And you might only get two or three sales a year. Yeah. So that you know, so it's homogenous for the area, mm. um, but um, there's not a lot of sales. So yep. that, that does create a problem for your yes. modelling. Yeah. Other scenario is a, a heterogeneous house. Uh, Balmain, perfect example, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you've got these, you know, and you, so you've got the gentrification happening. You've got a, and then because we don't have yet a really robust measure of quality of the property, you know, mm-hmm. is it renovated? Yeah. Um, then you're bringing comparable sales into the model that kind of effectively what it does is it kind of groups together what it thinks are the best five or six yep. or 10 comparables. And then does a weighted average based on, you know, the best one, best match ones are the highest weights. And then if I've got to kind of scratch around and, and get one from Roselle for, for Balmain, it might be a little, it still might be in the mix, but I'll have a less, a lower weight. Yes, yep. So that's how these models typically work. And if you've got to go back further in time, you index them up. Mm-hmm. So if the, you know, a couple of things I can call out there. If I've got, uh, if I've got to go and reach out to another suburb, well, you know, it's a, it's, it could be a very different profile mm. suburb. 
Um, if I've got to go back in time, I'm a little bit exposed to the index itself because it could be up and down and all over the place. So yeah. the index could introduce some errors and there. And if you're using the median to create the index. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. indices themselves introduce mm. some error. And then that real biggie in, in a place like Balmain is, well, there could be some renovated duties in that mix and then mm. a couple of dogs. Mm. Yeah. So, or badly you know, renovated houses. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and they're the things that go wrong in, in, in the models. Uh, so I think that's a call out. But one interesting thing is kind of getting futuristic now is the photos are starting to open themselves up to AI. Yeah. You know, mm. I, I wanted to get AI in. You've got to talk about artificial you going to do this? <laughs> So AI is a really interesting trend that's going to start to, to um, play into the AVM space. And I think the biggie is um, AI will start with photos. So there's some um, products coming out of, uh, there's a company in Spain at the moment. Um, their whole objective is to take a photo for a property uh, that's on a listings portal, a real estate portal, and then interrogate that photo through AI methods to give it some tags. So mm. effectively, you know, used for helping you search for the properties better, used for SEO, you know, search engine mm. optimization. God. So you, you've got more <laughs> more data and more ability to search. It makes the website a bit richer and Google likes it. So that's their you know, use case. But when you take that and apply that to what we're talking about, predicting a house price, Suddenly now we're starting to pull out much bigger data sets. And we'll mm. let's pick on one simple data set. It's quality. Yeah, yep. Is the bathroom good or is it crap? Yep. Yeah, is the, is the kitchen renovated? Now, if the, if the picture can tell me that, then suddenly that's accounted for a very, very yep. big, big reason for error mm. in these models. Yep. So that's kind of one of the first big points where it goes from these AVMs are being used by banks now. You know, give or take, it might be used 20, 30% of, yep. of loans. Which but, is really scary in itself, isn't it? We could go down another entire rabbit hole about how useless that is as a risk management tool. Um, look, <laughs> I think if, it, if it's backed by some other sensible things, um, you know, the banks have been, I think, I'm biased, okay, but I think they've been pretty responsible with how they've used them. They won't do that on a high-risk property and they probably wouldn't be lending money to the high-risk property in the first place. Well, right. yeah, so it's LVR-driven. You know, okay, if you've got a yes. very small deposit, um, they're probably yeah. not going to be as... Gotcha. Uh, open uh, house in a good suburb on a good street in Sydney. And happy money borrowing fifty percent yeah. of it. Yeah, okay. But let's take the next step. Where where could this go in the next few years? Suddenly, you start to upload photos at the time of ordering the job, and then suddenly it's in scanning and interrogating the photo and and gleaning from it. And suddenly, the model's running real time and saying, "Well, okay, the more you tell me about the subject property, the more accurate the model's going to be." And real time, it's effectively saying, look, yeah, we've got enough confidence here. So it's like a, a valuer, but a, a, an AI version of the valuer, effectively wow. telling you within a few seconds, um, look, this is what we can glean from the aerial photo. Um, you know, we can see that there's a solar panel. We can see that the roof's made of tin. Uh, we can mm -hmm. see there's a swimming pool. Now, that data set's already there anyway. The government's already done that one. Mm -hmm. So then you overlay that with the front photo or mm -hmm. you overlay that with internal photos that are being uploaded. And as you're adding this data and mm. explaining to the model more about the property, it's expanding and using more and more data and returning back the price estimate as you go with yep. a confidence score. So, you know, if it's a little bit borderline on confidence, it says, well, tell me more, tell me more. So as long as you tell it enough and then there'll be a peak. And if, you, if your confidence level is still too low, that's when you flick it to the valuer. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where it's likely to go. And why does this really matter, I guess? Why does a real good valuation matter? Because it is a bit of a grayer. It's, it's a bit of an art. There's yeah. no kind of science. And yeah, as this 
you know, machine learning and AI starts learning more and more about getting more and more predictive and they're getting more and more close to what they're really worth. The value of a real estate agent in actually selling a property and a buyer knowing what it's actually worth, that they're actually starting to get closer and closer. And so organizations will see that as an opportunity to say, look, if you want to get a quick sale, we will value your property and we're very, we know what it's worth mm. and a buyer will trust the valuation because they'll know that the same metrics have gone in and potentially you might see a point where people are basically dis, basically taking out agents and just trusting the technology and trusting the valuation. That's already happening in places it's like the US. It's already happening. Yeah, it's already happening now. So it's just a percentage thing. It's happening it, on a very, very small scale. It might work when there's only one buyer for every property, but then introduce competition. And we've got a new bias coming in, a new anchoring technology or technique, if you like, where that could well become the bottom line, the bottom point. Yeah. And, you know, in a competitive market, they're going to go, oh, well, the 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 expert AI, the, the robot tells me it's worth X. So I'm really confident that it's worth X. We're all confident it's worth X. Now it's a matter of which one of us is going to fight harder to have it. You mentioned two things, Veronica. You said market and bottom. Mm. Uh, so one of the other things that these models will tell us is, is the market going up or down? So should I go up or should I go down? So that's the other call out here. So if you look at any of those time series charts, you'll see that sometimes they feather out. They go up above the line and down below the line in two colours. So that's projecting to say if the market goes up or down, what's the price range going to look like? So I think one of the call-outs there is if if I know that the market is a little bit overstocked or highly overstocked, the prices are going to be heading down. So there's a downward pressure on the price. If it's a really tight market and there's hardly any stock available and the days on market's low and all those other things indicate that there's upward pressure on price, um, then you're correct. It'll be a, this is the price as the base. So that's how it could be used really to say, should I go above or below or on target with that price, depending on the underlying market trend. And that's mm. when an auctioneer type software could then say, look, we've got whoever's going to give us the most money over the next five days. You know, we know we've got a pretty good estimate on price. Um, and I mean, there's even the, the viewings are now getting better because there's technology like Matterport that basically can, you know, almost virtual reality map the whole house. Yeah. And so you could literally go through an online viewing of a property um, with a pretty good price. You know, I guess it's, it's pretty scary if you're an agent that just is looking just to not add any value through the whole process. Yeah, I, look, things will change. We know that. And there's a, you know, a website, I forget the exact domain name, but it's, you know, will a robot take my job. You know, you key that in and then if it says you're doomed, um, yeah, yeah, you would feel threatened. Absolutely. And you look at real estate appraisers as well and, and that comes back and you, know, you key that in, it says doomed. Mm. Um, and and you know, as a result of AI, will, you know, will that robot take my job? Um, so there's always going to be a job. It's will, will the industry grow? So one of the, th I guess, going back to property buyers and then looking at data, for how they can make better decisions, which is really fundamentally what we want to yeah. help our buyers with here. You know, you talked around the, the incomes in an area with your um, the CIFA index. Yeah. Yep. You know, one of the things I always talk about is that, you know, for property prices to go up, you need population growth. Yep. You need more demand. Yep. We know there's already supply issues because you're only buying property that has supply restriction. Yeah. So as long as you've got population going up, but- you actually want the right type of population in the area that you want to buy going up. Well, are they, is the population growing with people who can afford to buy property? Mm. Exactly. So the incomes in that area have to be rising, and you can see that through things like the census. Yes. 
what are some of the other things that buyers should be looking at from a data point of view yeah. that can give them, I guess, really good insights to say, look, we're doing the right thing? Um, look, there's some some uniform data that's there year on year or census on census. So, you know, some of the big call outs you've, you've, you've made in terms of population growth, et cetera. There's some stuff that is short term that's of interest. So, you know, I think always knowing how many listings there are and mm-hmm. knowing what's selling. So really, you know, and the, the call out here is um, if there's 100 listings and the average properties um, that sell each month, there's, you know, on average, say 10 sell per month, 100 divided by 10, 10 months of stock, right? Mm. So knowing that trend, I think, is yeah. really a big thing. So there's some immediate um, data sets that tell me, you know, what's the here and now uh, and what's the underlying trend. And then there's that long-term stuff, the big macro stuff. So population growth falls into that macro variable. Uh, interest rates is a big one. You know, we've, we're off this this historically low period. And there's people- but What's who, the best way to like understand data and interest rate though? Well, it's only a variable if it varies. And, you know, <laughs> it hasn't varied too much. You know, mm. it's just been low. Mm. So, so suddenly you know, the models are starting to not recognise if they're only models based on the last 5, 10, 15 years. The interest rate's not even really factoring these models. You know, it will once it starts to rise again and then you've got some areas mm. where prices are going to fall where people are a little bit overstretched. So what you'd almost have to do in that, in that to answer that question is go back to when they were a bit higher and they did vary and look at some older studies. Mm. Now, you know, one thing is you, you just never know whether you can apply the model from pre-2000 to, to now, but you can learn some basic principles. And, you know, the big ticket stuff, you know, includes interest rates, income, GDP, you know, all the macroeconomic stuff feeds into the models. Yeah. So, they're, you know, you kind of write them off as a kind of underlying laws of, of, of any market, any economic market or housing market. And then you really need to drill in what's driving it at a local level. Yep. And, and, and the big stuff there really comes in the form of knowing what the capital infrastructure, are there some big spending due? Is there a new rail line going in, uh, et cetera? So I think, you know, knowing where the money's being spent, where the population's going and why is really good. And that's where the people can't often come in because you've got data sets that are freely available. Mm. But then that local knowledge, that local know-how. Come, That's a qualitative. Yeah. So coming from a buyer's side. agent or a real estate agent, you know, it's that 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 true local knowledge. I think that local knowledge sometimes make me question as well because not every project's equal. So, you know, you're putting a new train line in. Yes. Is a big deal. Yeah. You know, the access to, get to employment and the ability to travel to work yeah. is a big deal. A new Woolies going in, <laughs> it's not a big deal. You yeah. know, and and I think sometimes people is they they put overemphasis on some pieces of data and oh, infrastructure, yeah, and then under underweight big big deals. So a new freeway like the West Connects or a new train line or a new these are big things, and these are the things that you really need to understand and actually be aware of. But you know, if a little kind of you know, a couple of cafes are opening oh, up. Yeah, not, not, not a, big a big deal. deal. Funnily but, enough, actually, I think cafes probably have more well, of an cafes impact. cafes are, but yeah. when people bang on about, oh, there's a hospital and university going in, it's like, yep, and so people will rent while they work there and then when they no longer work there, what is their reason for wanting to stay there? I mean, I call that the airport, right? So to build the airport, you need 10,000 people. Yeah. Once the airport's built, <laughs> especially with the future of AI, Ten people need to work there. So, <laughs> yeah. well, look, I've seen some markets where you know hospitals are going in, and it's had a massive impact on the local area. 
Mm. You know, so, so suddenly, you know, you, you were buying a property there for 1.5 and then the hospital announcement comes and suddenly they're selling for 1.7. So that's where it doesn't. You know, there's an, yeah, yeah. But mm. there's, you know, so you've really got to kind of take it on a case by case. But from mine, all I've ever really seen is the, the positive impact of these big capital works like a hospital or an airport, as long as you're not living under the flight path. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, when looking at historical data, mm. how useful is that in predicting the future? Um, look, uh, an interesting one is I, I looked before the data sets became freely available. I, mean, you know, I knocked on the door of the old APM in the day and uh, I got, uh, we were looking to buy our first property out at Coogee, you know, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, just a unit. And I noticed something is really interesting. It was just a flat line through the, the tough times in the 80s. So, you know, a lot of markets dipped and down in Victoria and Melbourne, a lot of suburbs really dipped. But Coogee and a lot of the eastern suburbs of Sydney stayed flat. And, and suddenly, so what that told me was, why did that happen? And, and then you start to realise that if it's old money or, you know, people are not highly leveraged, when things go bad, they don't need to sell. Yeah, exactly. So that was my lesson. So, mm. you know, historical data told me a little bit about, you know, investment behaviour or owner, owner behaviour. So it's, That's interesting. I talk a lot about the difference in back to the median, which we know is susceptible to compositional bias. Yes. However, a median growth pattern or chart will look very different for inner areas than it does in cyclical areas. So what everyone seems to think that the property market has is peaks and troughs. And in the inner city areas and Coogee, for instance, where people aren't forced to sell in in bad times, you will see the growth curve flattens out, doesn't drop. And as opposed to dropping in outer areas where people are, you know, more under pressure to sell or for whatever reason, you know, there's other drivers out there. And it is a big distinction and it's one of the reasons that I always bang on that that 10K radius of the CBD of Sydney or Melbourne are the most the safest areas in which to invest. For that reason. Yeah, yeah. So, and this is what you noticed, obviously, when you are buying your first property. Did you buy one there? Yeah, yeah, we did great. I think we bought it the we bought it for 368 and then we sold it for 518 months later. It's not bad. Not bad. Eighteen months, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. One of the things with that, when you've got a good property, is that in hindsight you wish oh, you probably I'm, never I'm, got I'm, rid I'm of it. I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The time you were probably fully stretched. <laughs> so, so we've gone backwards, and I mean, in investing, you know, past performance is is not a reliance on the future. Humans, though, we love it. We love past performance. We actually get overexcited about it, and we think, oh, the market's gone up fifteen percent this year. Speaking of somewhere like Hobart right now, mm. I might I need to get in before it's too late. Mm. What's your view <laughs> on kind of recent high performance and the risks? Yeah, well, you know, I, I'd always kind of say don't believe the hype, but that's just a song, isn't it? Was it Public Enemy? I think. Um, but yep. I, I think just be aware of the hype, <laughs> you know, and 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 sidestep the hype. Um, you know, Hobart's just dominating the charts and has been for about a yeah. year. So you know, th- there's a lot there. Now, okay, let's dig down. Why are people buying there? Are they buying there because of the hype or are they retiring there? Mm-hmm. Now, if it's people selling up in Melbourne and moving down there or Sydney and moving down there retiring, then you can see that that's going to be ongoing because all the boomers are moving into retirement. Yep. So that could be the tip of the iceberg and it could be good, solid, ongoing demand there. So that's kind of removing the hype element. If there's if the foundations are there, it uh, makes sense. Yeah, now, exactly. And what are they that? buying? <laughs> well, how I would do it is I'd get on the phone and talk to some agents. Yeah, qualitative research. Yeah. Very smart, very smart. Now, going forward, how far forward can you actually look at current data to predict the future? Now, if I'm thinking about buying this property, I never want to sell it. I want to be thinking 2060. Can we rely on current data to think that far ahead? 
Well, you go back to those macro things. Question number one, uh, is population going to continue to grow? Question two, interest rates. Are they going to stay where they are or are they going to creep up? You know, will we have a war? You've got some black swans in there, so you're going to bring in those things. But just think about the big macroeconomic stuff. You know, if all the foundations are there, yeah. Um, but, you know, you've got to kind of call it out that if the market goes flat, which we were kind of earlier saying is really good, well, you're still going to net, net out CPI. You know, in real terms, mm. the flat market's coming back by 2%. So I think, you know, looking at the historical stuff, um, it's been really odd, though. The last 20 years have not been. We've, you mm. know, the, uh, you, there used to be the old adage, oh, yeah, the prices will double every 10 years. You ca- I can't say that for the next 10 years. Well, also, I mean, where will they double every 10 years? I mean, uh, to be honest, I actually think that there are certain areas where I think that's a fairly reasonable expectation. But I also know that people apply that blanket uh, expectation across the board and they've never read the thing I bang on all about all the time about is, is CoreLogic's pain and gain report. Yeah. You know, that, yes, you can lose money in property. And, you know, I think it's really important people understand that you can and there's a difference in the type of property and the type of locations where you, you can lose money. Yeah, absolutely. And, there, you know, there's supporting, good supporting data to tell you is this area like you're in a 10K radius in mm. the big city or is it one of these areas got some holiday homes and and whatnot, and, yeah. you know, and they're the, they're the markets that do the ups and downs. But people don't want to, you know, if you're thinking you want to see change and you want to move there in 10, 15 years and you've got rose-coloured glasses on about how lovely your life's going to be, you don't want to know that. No. Well, that's right. You would have believed <laughs> You're on that. holiday, right? You've kind of been looking in, walking along the main road. Oh, holding hands, walking <laughs> yeah, along the sand. beautiful. <laughs> I mean, that's one of my frustrations with a lot of this research, which we, we kind of touched on before. A, a lot of, you know, people when they're selling property, they want to put a capital and return growth rate on their yeah. forecast of where this property mm. is going to be worth in 10 years' time. And they'll use, you know, capital growth rates of 6 7%. Um, these numbers are absolute nonsense. Correct. Uh, the world doesn't work in straight lines. The no. world, and <laughs> and uh, these, this, this forecast is actually this research and this thing they're selling it on um, is absolutely not worth the paper it's written on. You know, that number is just a random number and we shouldn't have any, like, tie to it. It's just something to sell the property. I guess one um, thing to, to bear in mind, what's actually happened in the last 20 years as well, we've got you know, one income to two incomes. Yes. You know, we've seen very strong wage growth. We've had no recession. We've had great bank lending policy. Um, you know, all the tailwinds to push the property market up we've had. Yeah. Tell me some f- negatives. I mean, it's hard. You've got to kind yeah. of say, well, what would be a, something dampening house price growth? Well, yes, but you've got to remember that we're talking about Sydney and Melbourne, you know, What's dampened Perth? What's mm. dampened Darwin? What's dampened Brisbane? There's a lot dampening. Yeah, House price growth. Yeah, unemployment. Yeah, single uh, single industry towns yeah. in yeah. some of the mining towns, for God's sake. Mm. So, you know, we, we all always got to bring that into the equation and have people thinking about it's not you're not always going to make money in property. It's not safe as houses. I'll throw in the JLL tag here. So we've been building some models based on that, and that mm. data is all freely available. Yeah, we're looking at so uh, in, um, industry some, employment. So you look, you know, percentage <laughs> of, of of people employed in a given industry, and we look at all those and we list them down and we say, well, is there too much in one industry? And mm. then we pull that out as one of the scoring variables. 
in terms of market risk. Yeah, great. Well, I imagine there must be a bit in real estate, financial advice, mortgage broking. Oh, but we're, <laughs> at the moment we're using it more for our quality management team because it's a pretty robust big team. And, and, and what we're trying to do is obviously uh, empower that team so that they can look at areas outside of their own immediate domain and look at something in another state. Yeah. Um, so the scorecard really, you know, it's public domain data. We're mm. taking the, you know, employment by industry. And if it's above a certain, well, it's certainly double digit, you, yep. you call that out and you, you can score on that stuff. There's, yep. you know, 34 or whatever tables of, of um, uh, census data that your taxes have paid for down to the SA1, down to a couple of hundred homes right up to, you know, city level. And then the thing is, of course, that you know companies such as you, you've got access to that data, and you can you've got the smarts and the and the insights to be able to put that into a usable form. Yeah. Therein lies the danger or the difficulty for the individual buyer is to then thinking, okay, which data company is aggregating all that data in a useful, yeah. usable, reliable way? Very, very difficult. And in fact, one of the things that you know that you mentioned, uh, well, that we mentioned in your intro was that when you're at PriceFinder and also at Real Estate View, that you were using user-assisted tools. So yes. that is where you're effectively going to the user of the data, yeah. the, the real estate agents in this case, and actually asking them for the information that then becomes the data. Well, yeah, the pr- PriceFinder <laughs> model was interesting in that we designed it originally around, I had some 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 data quality issues, so I built it around, well, don't like that one because it's crappy, you know, remove it and replace it. Um, then I introduced the sliders um, to say, is it better or worse, mm. and built that into the algorithm. Um, and I, I didn't have a clue. I didn't. I wasn't a UI expert. I just kind of built it around trying to fix some data UI problems. Being... Uh, user interface. Thank you. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and what happened was this gamification of, of the price tool mm. became a big feature of it, and people got stuck on it and loved it, and you kind of read blog posts and, you know, yeah. oh, it's great, we can make it more accurate. Um, so the positive is, you know, all of those things and you can make it more accurate. But the flip side is if you want to be biased and you wanted to nudge it up, um, you, you just put all the sliders to one end and yeah. say, you know, my property is better than all of these six. But the model, you know, what you're referring to in terms of there's metadata in what the, the user is doing. And mm. if you store that information, so well, hang on, how many properties have you removed? Right, is yeah. that above the average? Uh, hang on, you're cherry picking. So there's clues. And have you moved all the sliders down one end? So, yep. you know, well, you're out. So you can kind of create a confidence score based on what the user is doing mm. with the site. Uh, interesting. And because also there's been recently in real estate circles anywhere, I'm not sure about in the wider, the wider marketplace, a bit of controversy about auction clearance rates and the data that goes into what what is included and the source of that data. Do you want to talk yeah, a bit about that? Yeah, so th- there's some interesting um, observations there. Some of the call-outs are, you know, are, are people truly reporting everything, you know, or are they um, effectively only reporting the ones that are going ahead. Um, so, so there came, you know, there's been a few ac- accusations about what's going into the into the sample, what's being counted there. Um, so yeah, that's certainly of interest. The other one that's an interesting data set is days on market. So you've really got to be aware of some of the tricks of the trade and what can happen. So if you've got a listing and I want to try and get it back up to the top, you know, do a suburb search here at listings, I can pull that down and put it back up and pull it down, pull it back up to try and cheat game system. So the problem can be if you're not aware of that, um, that can kind of flow into days on market measures. So you've got to be really cautious. So what you really want to do is kind of Bring everything back to a known address. Yeah. Identify the address and say, when did I first see that address? And when have I last seen the address? And use that as your measure. Um, 
<laughs> That's it. What about different agents? So because sometimes when I'm when we're doing our research on a property, we're looking at buying, and if particularly if an owner has had an unrealistic price expectation for years in some cases, oh, yes. and maybe been through a few different agents, you could actually have thousands of days on market with oh, some properties. Yeah, yeah. I think the call out there though is if you use the median, typically um, a median as a measure is. Line everything up from the lowest value in order to the highest value. Take the one in the middle, yeah. the 50th percentile. What it does is it knocks out some of the weirdos. Yeah, okay. The outliers, yeah. yeah. You mentioned one of your first lines you spoke about was the devil, you know, enough information to be dangerous. Yes. Mm. Now, one of the things in discussions when you're chatting to people and they're um, using, well, my friend did this, I've got a story and this research supports my story. You know, we've got lots of biases, you know, oh, yeah. anecdotal confirmation bias, you know, bias. Yes. overconfidence, <laughs> you know, there's, we can find whatever data we want to support our argument. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll Google it. I'll yeah. Google it until I find the answer. Mm. How dangerous is that really? Oh, well, if you're not going to be uh, objective, um, you know, before you're going to spend a million bucks or more, um, then God help you. And so what sort of things can you do? Because I look at this and go, well, when you know that you're starting to come very and you're not listening to other people's opinions, um, it's a pretty good sign for you to start to the, – the red light's on. You should be looking for other pieces of evidence. Yeah, I, I think sometimes you know, you've got to respect the fact that, A, I may not be an expert in this locality. B, mm-hmm. I may not be an expert in housing, property market. C, I don't know, understand all the data. That's when you go to an expert. There's industries mm-hmm. out there. You know, go and see a buyer's advocate. That's true, of course. The um, problem with some experts is they're not actually experts. Experts. <laughs> yeah. And even if they think they're an expert, sometimes they're not sound checking what they actually think mm. and yeah. they're not actually consciously understanding that they're also biased and they need to also be thinking, look, am I wrong? You know, what evidence can I find that I'm not, that I'm wrong? And, and, and doing research against that goes against their beliefs. Yeah. And I think that's when I think you realise you actually can actually start to form really good opinions on something is actually when you're you're looking for evidence that disapproves what you do. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where a lot of experts don't actually do. They just look for, oh, I, I can gather that extra research to support what I already oh, do. Look, I, I think as an expert too, you've got a there's a commercial principle there. I've got to get the job in or out. You know, so I've got a I've I've got a time constraint or a cost constraint. I've got to get if I don't do the deal, if I don't sell the house, I don't get paid. And that's a reality that you've got to accept. So now, from the buyer, um, ultimately the responsibility is with the person spending the money. I think, you know, from buyer's perspective, they've really got to check in with themselves to think, well, am I looking for a quick solution? Am I looking, you know, get rich quick, for instance? Yeah. yeah actually, it, it might happen in property, but it's more luck than good management. And I think anyone is looking for a, a fast, quick, sounds real good answer, they've just Got to check in with that and park it a bit and, and take their time to make a good decision because it's it's those people I think that are really really looking for the, the silver bullet. They're the oh, ones yeah. that are most susceptible, yeah. most susceptible to, to bad advice. And then up the other end of the spectrum, people like me, I'm I'm you know analysis paralysis. Yeah, I go, I'm so deep in the data, I'm <laughs> petrified. I won't make a decision. Yeah, that's when you need that person just to drag you in the right direction. But I think you're right. Like these, are, we're not buying a t-shirt. We're not buying a car stereo. You're not buying, you know, <laughs> a new rug. You know, this is a huge decision property. Yeah. And, you know, there is a like some people do want to just make a quick decision. They do want to be sold, you know, the dream and get rich quick. 
and people don't deal with stress very well and they do want to just get the answers and unfortunately with property you've actually just got to take your time to you to it's really understands the right decision um and not just believe the first person you ever speak to that they're the right person take you know you need to take your time i i simplify things i say you really look at the right comparable sales you know what what has What's been selling that's exactly like this property or as close as possible to this property? What's the actual sale price? Ignoring everything else. You know, they're here, and then the bigger you get that, you get that four or five or six properties that have been objectively selected. And then suddenly you say, well, there's six people who've purchased properties. If all six have made the same mistake, then there's a probability that I might make the same mistake. But if, you know, if they've all been objective and they've done the right thing, it's gonna help me understand the price that I should be paying. Every week, we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Now, Ken, help our listeners out here. Give us an example of a property dumbo. We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Yeah, it's the it's the overcapitalization. So you, you go straight into the... Uh, the suburb that might have a median price of five hundred or six hundred thousand, and you go and spend three hundred thousand renovating the house, and then suddenly you expect it to be worth nine hundred. Yet, when you look at the comparables, the most you're going to get for a five bedroom is going to be eight or seven fifty. And then what usually happens is they've already done it, they've already committed to it, and they're out trying to get the refi, and then they're out hunting, fishing around, trying to get the valuation to support their ideal of what that price is. And again, it comes down to that comparable sale thing. So I think the key here is a lot of people think, I'll add another bedroom, I'll add another bedroom, I'll add another bedroom. But remember, it flattens out. You don't get a lot of value yep. from the fourth to the fifth, from the fifth to the sixth. It's so Two to true. three, yeah, but... Yeah, we're talking about the inner west and Balmain. Balmain yeah. was a little gold mine for a while there because there were one bedroom terraces mm. and people were kind of going up into the loft and putting in an extra bedroom and a bathroom and go, bingo, there's an extra 300K, happy days. So I, I, I really, the call out for me is just know that it's not a, a, you know, a, a, a linear return for adding bedrooms and bathrooms. I think that's a really big, big point because I get a lot of clients who come to me in there in a house, the kids are getting older, they need to renovate. And the big thing is, is there's two risks. One, you overcapitalize. And then the second risk is the market isn't steady and the market can go backwards. Yeah. So not only can you overcapitalize, but you can overcapitalize and the market can fall. And if you do that, you, you basically get hit twice. So no, you've also got, whenever you're spending for a renovation, you've got to make sure, A, I'm not going to overcapitalize. There's actually money to be made because if the market does go back, at least I'm still breaking even. Yeah. And I think the justification people make is, oh, well, we're here for the long term, so it's okay that oh, I've just blown 100K. Yes. Until there's a divorce or work doesn't go mm. very well. Funny or the about kids, that. Something happens to the kids. But, you know, life changes. It's yeah. not predictable. Yeah. yeah. Not just that, though, but quite often what I see is people cram extra bedrooms in and the house then becomes unbalanced. There's not enough living space to justify or to serve those four bedrooms for argument's sake. Or there's not enough outdoor space oh, yeah. to to support or, or to appeal to a family that's going to need four bedrooms for their kids. And so they turn, that by thinking that bedrooms equate 
value, they can often turn a really well-balanced house that has lots of buyer appeal into something that has very limited buyer appeal and actually ends up devaluing the property purely by that process. There's some good examples, though, of where going to say from three to four makes a lot of sense. And Mm -hmm. I begged my in-laws before they sold in Sydney to go from three to four because they had three living areas. And mm. they could have just petitioned off the formal dining room, made it four bedroom. And and the reason why I wanted to talk about this was if I'm going in there and searching, if I've got a family of five or six and I'm searching for a four bedroom, I can put in four plus when I'm searching on mm. REA or domain. And then suddenly you're ignoring anything yep. that's less than four bedroom. So that's the, the probably the call out there. Yeah, is, it's really smart. You know, just, just think about that how people are searching for properties. They're ignoring your three bedroom. And they're not even getting in to see. So hang on a minute, I could close that wall off for a hundred bucks and convert it to a bedroom. Yeah, it's really true. And even if you're a buyer, you're thinking you need a four bed. Why don't you just have a quick squeeze of the threes? That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. And look, we say that to to people that, you know, come to us just want to learn how to look for property. And we say the the, the less criteria you stick in those search engines, the better. Yeah. You know, like parking's a good one, you know, like it property might have potential for parking. It's on a rear lane, but they can't, the agent can't actually advertise it with parking unless they've actually put it in. Yeah. And so like, just knock that out. So what that if it's essential to you, you can quickly scan through and, and delete it. We want to make you a better elephant rider. This week's elephant rider training comes directly from Kent. Thanks, Veronica. Look, probably my key takeaway is um, from a personal experience, um, I thought just property data alone would help me buy in an area that was outside. So we were looking to buy in Newcastle. We live there now in the same house. If we had used a buyer's agent uh, locally, we would have probably saved about 20 trips up the freeway um, and probably saved about 20 or 30,000. So even though I was in property data, you know, there was an arrogance there, right? I know I'm fine. I've got the data. And really what I should have done is recognize that I don't really know the local market. I don't know the agents. I should have used a buyer's agent straight up. So that would have probably saved me a lot of money in the big. So the takeaway there is if when you're buying in an area that you're not familiar with, that local experience is worth its weight in gold and also saves you a lot of petrol. Absolutely. Yeah. And tires as well. So I think that was my number one. Um, the second tip that I've got um, is just appreciating that an agent's job is ultimately to sell the property. So I, I think you 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 need to understand that there can be some bias in those comparable market analysis reports that are you know, presented. They're sitting on the table as you walk in. Um, pick them up, look at them. That's great. But equally, go and have a look at the comparables yourself and see if there's been any of that bias that we've been talking about. Um, so just you know, investigate, see if there are better comparable sales against that property and don't just rely on that uh, report on the uh, on the coffee table. Excellent tips. Thank you very much, Kent. I have to say it's been enlightening. I mean, you and I chat, you know, f- every now and then and I love hearing all your insights uh, in data and around data. I think the future of how data is going to be used and, and usable for property buyers is very, very interesting and so we'll all have to watch that space. But I think the takeaway and the, and the very important thing for buyers to understand is with the amazing plethora of data and research tools available to us, we do need to understand that they all have their failings and that we have to dig beneath the data and understand it better before we make decisions based on it. It was great being here. That's brilliant. I mean, like these, no one talks about this stuff. No one talks about the data. Oh, it's great. The importance the of the data. The, data, the you know, What's the data. in it? I love it. Thank you. 
Okay, Chris, what have we added to our memory bank this week? So this week after our chat with Ken, I think it's really important that we we actually get some really good data sources on our actual little checklist for where we actually think about when we think about property. So um, we'll put them all in the show notes. Some, some great links for you to, to consider when you're looking at property. Just remember, you need to interpret them. It's all about understanding data. In our next episode, we interview Mary Ann Cronin, a sales agent from Phillips Panzer Donnelly in Sydney's eastern suburbs. And Mary Ann shares her insights on the process of making offers before auction and also the questions buyers should be asking real estate agents rather than the ones they actually do. Mary Ann also has a fair bit to say about the capital growth prospects of units versus houses. So listen and send us some feedback because we'd be really interested to know if our listeners agree. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded and edited by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Me again. We're looking forward to spending more time with you and uncovering what's really going on in the world of real estate. Please subscribe. Be sure to send us a message, leave an iTunes review and tell your friends. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.